Today's sermon text is Galatians 1, 6 through 10. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. When, when was the last time that someone rebuked you or corrected you or, or admonished you? When did that happen last? And, um, and how did you respond? Was your response more kind of bowing up in anger and frustration and getting defensive and, and ready to kind of respond to the things that hurt you? Or was it more hurt and turning away, kind of sad, broken, maybe even, maybe even crying? And most of us don't like to receive correction. Most of us don't like to receive rebuke. We live in an age where uh, feelings are significant and important and and we're, we're easily hurt, and we don't feel understood. And yet, you know, the Proverbs give us a different picture of the value of a rebuke, a correction. Uh, one example would be chapter 27, where Solomon writes, Better is open rebuke than hidden love, or quiet love. Faithful are the words of a friend, or the wounds of a friend, excuse me. Uh, the Bible sees rebuke, correction, as a good thing. Now, of course, it has to be done right and with compassion and truth and for the benefit of the listener, but it sees it as a good thing. And I think you're going to see a good example of that in our passage today, where Paul is, you kind of see a different Paul. <clears throat> There's no thanks being given. In all of his other New Testament letters, he gives thanks, he prays, he commends the leaders of the church. Not so here. There's none of that. There's no greetings. What Paul's doing is he's confronting a distortion of the gospel. There's a crisis of faith in this church. They are losing their way in respect to the nature of the gospel. And so he's going to do three things. First, he's going to confront it. He's going to, he's going to meet this crisis of faith head on. And then he's going to tell us the dangers this is what will happen if we go down this path. And then he's going to defend himself. Or I should say better, he's going to explain himself. Why he's speaking with the severity with which he speaks. Uh, so first, he's going to meet the challenge of this distorting faith. Things were changing. Look with me at 6 and 7 real briefly. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Uh, Paul's amazed. He's astonished. He's appalled. He's rebuking them. I mean, think about it for a minute. <clears throat> Paul had just brief, you know, just not many years prior, had planted all the, he preached the gospel to those churches in southern Galatia. Well, if truth be told, there were no churches. So he was itinerant, preaching through. They heard the gospel. They believed the gospel, and churches were formed. And all of a sudden now, they're turning. They're turning away from them. 
I, I mean, he says in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Oh, foolish Galatians, who's, who has bewitched you? Why are you turning? That word for turn is kind of significant. It, it means to apostatize. It means to shift allegiances. It's, it's used when a soldier goes to the other side. We call him a traitor or a turncoat. He says, who's bewitched you? And this isn't over some small point of theology or some detail about some secondary issue. It isn't like that at all. Notice what he says, that you're deserting the one, him, who called you into the grace of our Lord Jesus. You're turning from God, uh, the, savior, the Savior of sinners. You're turning away from him. Not just God, but you're turning from not just a God of mercy, but a gospel of grace. Remember last week, you know, incidentally, in this chapter, we don't even speak about the gospel. He's just talking about false gospels. But we saw in chapter 1 at the beginning, the gospel is from above, right? We saw that. It came from above. There is no human discovery or discernment or deliberation about the nature of the gospel. God gave the gospel to Paul. Paul delivered it. It was a gospel that came in grace. Salvation comes in grace. And it brings about a peace, a reconciliation between God and man. And all of that is because Jesus gave himself for our sins, that voluntary, that substitutionary nature of the atonement. Jesus Christ did this for us. And it will be to God's glory because he's delivering us from the present evil age. That's the gospel, this gospel of grace. Now, I want you to know that when we read the gospel in the New Testament, it wasn't just landing there in the time of Jesus. All the promises are in the Old Testament. You see the pictures of them all the time. I think about the Exodus for a minute. The Exodus, God delivering a people from slavery in Egypt. That is a picture of what, of what he would do for us fully and completely in Christ. Delivering them out of bondage, bringing them into freedom, bringing them into a land. Call it a new Eden. They're bringing them, God's going to bring them. He calls them my sons. He's drawing back. He's reconciling that division that took place over our sin. God's doing this work. So in the Old Testament, you see the beautiful picture there, and now you see it bloom in the New Testament, in the Gospel. Or take the exile. The people of God rebelled against God. Time and time again, prophet after prophet after prophet. I mean, you talk about Groundhog Day, prophet after, and they keep rejecting. He sends them to Babylon, but he promises, I'm going to return you. I'm going to bring you back, and I'm going to lead you to a new land. And it's really going to be a new age. That's what the gospel is teaching us. It's fulfilling the entire Old Testament. So now he's delivering us from this present evil age. This is why Paul's so shocked. Why would you go to another gospel when this one has finally bloomed? It makes no sense to him. You have a God who forgives, who loves, who reconciles, and he does it all because of his own mercy. Why go back to the shadows when you have the substance? That's why Paul's just amazed. Who would want to go back to law when you have liberty? Doesn't make sense. And he's surprised how quickly they've turned, how quick it was. You know, you notice he uses the word quickly, how quickly you turn. It, you know, those were almost the exact same words that God uses to Israel when they built the golden calf. God had brought them out of Egypt. He had given them a covenant. He had loved them, protected them, defended them, saved them. And Moses is on the mount with God. And quickly they turn away. 
In fact, he says in Exodus 32, this is God speaking, they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. How incredible that would be. Paul is trying to remind these foolish Galatians, be careful, you're quickly turning away. Now, to what gospel did they turn? Because it says another gospel. But you notice that Paul quickly corrects it and says, well, there's really not another gospel. There aren't alternative gospels. It's not like gospel A, B, or C. You pick, your, you pick the one you like. There is no other gospel. What they were turning to was a distorted gospel, a twisted gospel, a perverted gospel is what the word means. To distort means to radically change the nature of something. So like fresh water going to salt, or like water going to blood. It was literally an anti-gospel, is what they're turning to. Now this gospel clearly wasn't from above, it was from these false teachers, these Jewish Christian teachers, who were saying, yes, put your faith in Jesus Christ as a Messiah, but in addition to that, as a requirement, as a good response there are other things you ought to do. So James Dunn is a New Testament theologian. He says, these false teachers were Christian Jewish missionaries who had come to Galatia to improve or correct Paul's gospel and to complete his converts by integrating them fully into heirs of Abraham through circumcision and by bringing them under the law, under the law. In other words, these Jewish teachers thought, well, if you want to be God's people, if you really want to be true Christians, as we're going to see in chapters 2, 3, and 4 of Galatians, you ought to be circumcised. You ought to be practicing these dietary laws. You ought to be practicing the Sabbath. These are good things God has given them to us, and they distinguish us from the rest of the world. And in chapter 2, verse 14 of Galatians, it says that Paul says, don't force these Gentiles to become Jews. That's what they're doing. We're going to add to it as a means both of displaying you're part of the people of God, but also as a means of justification. This is how you show you're saved. This is how you walk out salvation. This is what it looks like in your life. Now, don't hear me clearly on this one. Uh, nothing wrong with law. The laws come from God. But when we make the law as a necessity to be part of God's kingdom, to be justified before God, that's the danger when we attach salvation, justification to it. Oh, listen, Luke records the same issue in Acts chapter 15, 1. He says, But some men have come down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. You can't be saved. You can't be delivered. You can't be part of the people of God. And th this is the false gospel. They're distorting it by adding good things to it. Now listen, you know, John Stott said, they want Moses to complete what Jesus started. That, that, that's kind of how you look. And Moses is going to complete what Jesus started. Now, how do we distort the gospel today? I mean, how do we twist the gospel today? Well, let me give you a few things to consider. Uh, first, it would be, of course, any addition to the gospel. When I say the gospel, I mean there is a faith in Jesus Christ who has come from the Father to be a savior, by that I mean he has come to take upon himself our sins and to suffer and die, bear the judgment of God for our sins, so that through faith we might be reconciled to God 
from the sins that we have committed. They've been given to him. Uh, folks, if you are not in the Christian faith, that is the gospel. And that by the power of the Spirit, God gives grace for us to believe. Belief isn't something you just kind of well up inside. Uh, faith is the gift of God's grace given to you so that you can believe. But you must believe. You must repent and believe. Just know that it's God who's already at work in you. Uh, so it's adding things to it. They may be good things. But it's not just adding things to the gospel. It's also beginning to trust those things, to trust in them, that I'm relying on the good things that I have done as securing me a spot in the kingdom of God. And it's not just trusting them, but then it's implicitly applying them to other people, that they need to do the same things that I'm doing to be in the same spot that I am. So there's an addition, there's a trust, and there's an implication that others need to do the same. Now let me be more specific with you. Some of the ways we do that today. It can be moral requirements that we add to the gospel. You know, churches have rules. You have rules. Families have rules. Countries have rules. Nothing wrong with the rules. But this idea of to be a true Christian, that you have to eat a certain way, or you can't drink alcohol, or you shouldn't go to movies, or you ought to homeschool your children, or it ought to be that you get vaccinated, or it ought to be that you don't get vaccinated, whatever the rule is. Again, rules themselves may or may not be fine or helpful, but it's when they form a pathway to find acceptance with God, if you're a true Christian. So there's the moral requirements, there's theological requirements. Some churches want to make sure that you believe certain things about creation. Creation has to be in six days, and if not, I don't know that you're in the right spot. Or it can be eschatology, how he returns, what, what will be those events that happen at his return. And we want some churches even put that in their statement of faith. If you want to really believe, this is what it is. Or a version of the Bible that you read. Or some view of the Christian, some view of the um, United States as a Christian nation. We have these, we have these theological requirements. If you want to be of the spiritual, you need to have these things. Others, cultural requirements. This is kind of new in the last twenty years, but cultural requirements that you need to be woke. You know, you need to be socially justice focused. You need to be diverse. You need to be aware of your carbon footprint. You need to buy fair trade, that these things are essential, to some, that, that the real and the truly converted Christian holds to these things. What they are, they're just additions to the gospel to find acceptance with God. They may be fine things, but to look at those as part of the gospel, to trust in those as putting you in better position, and to apply those to others is where it gets wonky. You know, we used to go to War West Virginia. Many of you remember that ministries that we did there. Uh, McDowell County was the poorest county, or one of the poorest counties in West Virginia. We'd go there. They, uh, what prompted was they had a bunch of floods, and so we, we went there and started going there and went there for a number of years. Uh, but we would go into the town and do a lot of service projects and try to promote the one Baptist church that was there. And so we did that and, and would go along and invite people to a, a worship service, you know, introduce them to the gospel. Nobody really went to church there. And one time a, a young man actually came. 
it came to the door of the church. Some of you remember this. You may even remember the story. I didn't know about it till later. Uh, but when he came to the door of the church, the pastor looked at him and said, uh, where's your belt? And uh, he said, uh, yeah, don't have one. He said, well, go home and get a belt. And uh, the boy did go home. I don't know if he ever got a belt because he never came back. And the, the tragedy of that at a lot of levels, uh, but in that boy's mind, the gospel got distorted. It, it's, yeah, I, got, I have to have this to come to him. You know, as opposed to what Martin Lloyd-Jones was, would say, the only thing you're bringing is your sin. You're not going to get rid of that. Just haul it all to him. You know, just go right to him. There, there, there's, no, there's no hindrances to go to him. But this, this man, according to this pastor, needed a belt. There is only one gospel. There is no other gospel. This truth, what Paul's going after, it's just a radical denial of religious pluralism. There's no other means of salvation other than faith in Christ alone. Alone, and I mean alone. God the Father, in mercy, sent the Son. The Son died, he came, and lived a perfect life, by the way. That is significant. We call that act of righteousness, that he lived a life that you and I should have. So when we stand before God, he's going to say, well done. Not based upon the improvements that we made over time, but based upon the merits of the Son. So the righteousness of Christ is ours. That's the beauty of the imputation of righteousness. He gives to us his merit, and we give to him our sin. It's a great exchange from our perspective. And he dies, and he's raised, and now the Spirit works in us to now work out that righteousness of Christ in us. So the gospel is never, it will never be what you did once you came. It's what he did to bring you. That, that God accepts us and then we follow as opposed to, no, we try to follow and then he accepts us. Big difference there. Why do we do it though? Well, let me, before I ask you this, what are your markers? Uh, what, what do you struggle with most? Is it a moral issue? Do you tend to look at other people who may profess Christianity? Now, I recognize there's a place for rebuke. Paul's doing it right here. There is a place for confrontation. We're not all going to agree on the same thing that makes our list, but to the degree that you hold it as a standard for them. Is it in the category of morality? Or perhaps it's in the category of theology, that they're not reformed enough, or they don't hold to my view of, of the end times or communion. Or maybe it's in the form of cultural requirements. But we wonder, if you see these in yourself, if you tend to look at others and those scales come up quickly and you line them up where they are, even, I think, in a reformed manner, I'm, yeah, totally transparent about that. But we accept and love people in this church that don't hold the same way. That's fine. So what scales come up in your mind? And then, and then repent of that. Now, now we've got to ask, why do we do this? You know, why do we always kind of move to this judgmentalism? I, I think it makes us feel good. We want to add things because we want to participate in this work of salvation. To be told that you can do nothing, that you only have to receive, we'd always rather go to a potluck than to be taken out to dinner. You know, potluck, we get to bring something. We had a wonderful potluck dinner last night, actually, for the new members. But when you're invited to someone's home and they put out the full display, 
They get the candles lit, good food, everything's done for you. Before you get out that door, you say the same thing every time. We've got to have you guys over for dinner. It's hard to just receive. It's hard to just say thank you. I deserve none of this, and I love it, and I enjoy it. But we want to give something back. We want to participate in the glory. And God has made it that we boast in Christ alone, not in the improvements we've made once Christ helped us or was our co-pilot. So I think we do it because it makes us feel good. I think we do it because it's measurable. We love addition. We, we love things, whether it's in a moral category, because, because we can grade ourselves. And we start to go up the rungs of the ladder, and we feel good about it. Or it's visible. We can see who's in, who's out. You know, if I have my own list of standards as to what you have to do, I can say, well, they're really in tight with us. Or, you know, they're kind of on the periphery. And we can begin to form tribalism just by virtue of the standards that the gospel doesn't give to us to measure people. So th this is really significant. You know, Paul is outraged. He is stunned. He's amazed. And this is why he moves with such severity. Notice he moves from confronting this false gospel the development of it. I think the Galatians are still his brothers. They haven't apostatized. But he sees, he smells smoke in the air. He's looking for fire. You know, moving over into a distorted gospel doesn't happen in a moment. It comes over time. It's a slow creep. But notice how severe he gets. Look with me at 8 and 9. Because in 8 and 9 he says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, and so I say again, so you, he must have said that while he was planting these churches, if anyone is preaching to, a got to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now, uh, this isn't a simple warning. You hear simple warnings all the time, right? Hey, be, be careful driving when it's raining out, or hey, you know, just make sure you cross the street when you don't see any cars coming. A lot of the warnings we give to each other are kind of throwaways. This is not a throwaway. You feel the weight of it, don't you? Paul is literally saying there are no exceptions to the gospel. People tamper with the gospel. I, I, Paul's saying, I don't care if tonight when you're laying in bed that an angel comes through the ceiling in blazing glory and begins to adjust, change, adopt this message of the gospel that they received from Paul, that Paul received from God, let him be accursed. That would be an amazing thing. He says, if we, if Paul comes to you, maybe a few years later, and says, you know, I've been thinking, I've developed my thoughts a little bit on the gospel, I'm moving a little bit in this direction, Paul's saying, let me be accursed. If anyone, anything, it, it, it can be, you may have a miraculous experience with somebody that gives to you a different understanding of the gospel. You may have some paranormal experience. It may be like outside of human doing, you may have some super spiritual experience where your hair stands up and you really feel the presence of God. Don't depart from the gospel is what he's saying. In fact, he says, let them be accursed. In the Old Testament, that would mean let them be devoted to destruction. He, he Let them be accursed. He's saying, let the judgment of God fall on them. He's saying, let them be damned. He's saying, let them go to hell. That's what he's saying. And he says it twice. So you don't, you don't say, well, Paul's just using hyperbole. He's kind of exaggerating here. He really just wants to make his point. No, that's not it. That's not it. 
He's wanting us to let him come, let him be cursed. To deny the gospel that upholds Christ and Christ alone. To deny that is to deny Christ. And you see the same thing he says to the church in Corinth. I wonder how many of you have read this verse. Because every time I read it, I'm struck by how I haven't thought much about this. But he says in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. That's severe. No love for the Lord. In other words, it's not just about cognitive belief that we always talk about. It's cognitive belief that trusts that God has sent a son, but then when we see the son who gave himself for our salvation, and to not love that, it's not, it means you don't really believe it. Now, I don't want you to start to measure your affection meter. I want you to see that the mind and the heart are together, that believing in Jesus Christ needs to always move towards a loving of the Savior. That's why every year I ask you, do you love him more? Don't want you to be accursed. I want you to be prepared. I want you to be ready to see him. Yes, I love him. If you don't, ask him for grace to see the beauty of his work, the very son of God for us. So, so you see Paul's severity here. You want to ask, well, why? Why is he so severe? Well, to change the gospel is to pervert the character of God. A God is a gracious and a merciful and a kind God who has given to us a son. And, and to turn the gospel into Jesus plus means that you're turning God into a pay Pay to play. Pay to play. You've got to bring some stuff. He'll bring some stuff, and you're good to go. It's turning it into a contractual arrangement and not purely of grace. So it perverts the very character of God. It diminishes the glory of Christ. It takes the one who says it's finished, and someone says, hold it, it's not. We've we, we got to just add a couple extra things on here. It, all the glory will go to the Savior who's done it all. But if he, if he, legit, if he legitimately has not done it all, then he, get, he doesn't get all the glory. And so if you find yourself, well, you've got to do this, and you've got to do that, then it, it diminishes the glory. It also, it also blinds people to the path of salvation. It blinds them to Christ. Like that young man that left thinking a belt significant in the eternal salvation of his soul. Can you imagine? It's like giving people directions and then going out and changing all the street signs. They'll never find it. They'll never find it. You leave them. You leave them lost by additions to the gospel. It burdens us with more laws, laws that we can't keep, we've never been able to keep. And here's what it does. This is really damning. It causes us to focus on the insignificant, and we miss the big. We miss the big. I'm worried about the length of my skirt, or I'm worried about having a glass of wine with dinner, or I'm worried about saying a cuss word, when I've got raging lust in my heart, I've got raging pride, I have no gratitude to God, and I'm worried about these, these small little, you know, they're straining out gnats while they're missing the weighty matters of the law. Jesus warned the Pharisees. So it's a significant issue. It blinds people, but it also threatens us. Let me remind you, as I've been doing these past few weeks, we are not threatened by the government we're not threatened by Islam. We're not threatened by anything outside. The greatest threat that we face, the greatest eternal, 
an ultimate threat is to miss the gospel, is to cloud it up or dilute it or add to it or draw from it. That's our greatest threat. And I want you to know that the responsibility is on this leadership of the church. It's on you as well. Notice Paul doesn't write to the false teachers. He's not even dealing with them. He doesn't call in the other apostles and say, come on, we've got to round up the... He doesn't call in the church leaders. He writes to the people. He expects that the people will understand with clarity the nature of the gospel and that you yourselves will be on point to know, love, defend the gospel. That if anything starts coming out of this pulpit that is somehow different than that, you will be the first one to stand up. Say, that's not true. It's on the church. It's really an argument for congregationalism just in this passage. So you see, Paul, first he confronts this false gospel, then he warns us of the danger of this gospel. It is a warning I hope we heed. Because I, there are so many false gospels, right? There are so many additions, not just that, but what the you know, prosperity gospel, therapeutic gospel, and on and on and on, as opposed to just that focus on Christ and him alone. The last thing is you see Paul really defend himself in this. Look with me at verse 10. In verse 10, he says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. I, I think what Paul's doing here is he's, he's trying to explain himself to the church. Uh, he was being accused by these false teachers, and we're going to see this as we go through the book, of trying to kind of curry some favor, maybe get some people, you know, get a following going. Later on, they'll accuse Paul of hypocrisy. They'll say, hey, Paul, when you're with the Jews, you act like a Jew. When you're with the Gentile, you're willing to act like a Gentile and pull all the rules off. And Paul's saying, really? I mean, am I really trying to please men? Uh, my gospel is saying that men and women are, are blind to the glory of God. They're deaf to the word of God. They're dead in sin. They cannot save themselves. They can do nothing. I mean, that is not a speech that wins friends and, yeah, wins friends and gathers people. I mean, Dale Carnegie would be very unhappy with this message. It wouldn't collect people. On top of all that, he's calling everybody and he's saying, may you be damned if you move to this gospel. May you be accursed. May God's judgment fall upon you. You know, you see Paul's heart in this when he says, if I was trying to please man, I wouldn't be pleasing God. This, this idea of, I don't care about numbers. I care about God. God is his audience of one. He wants, because God is glorious and his gospel is glorious, he is speaking on behalf of God, and he knows the responsibility that he bears. So, so you see that Paul's motivation in this rebuke of the people is fueled by his love for and devotion to God, even if it comes against and hurts people. Now, uh, let me just give you a couple takeaways here. We don't want to read this and think, oh, God will really find my approval, or God will really find my favor high if I really alienate and offend a lot of people. He's not calling us to be a jerk here. He's not calling us to be offensive to make sure God knows that I'm really putting him first. Uh, we, we, it is okay to seek the good of people even to please them. What he's simply saying here is that in the gospel message, let the message carry the offense and not the messenger. 
You know, let us be kind and gracious. Let us listen. Let us be gentle and empathetic to where people might be coming from. They may be coming from a tough spot. They may be coming from a seriously fundamentalist background or, or no God background at all. They can be coming from all over the place. But we don't want to be, we don't want to be mean-spirited about it because we're taking up this triumphalistic kind of call to I'm going to honor God and tick off everybody in the world around me. It's not what he's calling for. Secondly, he's calling for us to not fear man, for sure, not fear man, but fear God. So the tendency in, in uh, destroying the gospel will always be legalism or hedonism. Legalism, you're adding stuff to it. Hedonism, you're pulling stuff down from it. And in our day and age, it tends to be more on the hedonistic side of things, you know. They say, hey, if you want to gain a following, if you want to get people's approval, if you want to build the church, then don't preach sin. Don't hold up a high view of church membership. Don't call for repentance. Don't speak about doctrine because it divides. Don't bring church discipline. You'll notice that we do actually practice all those things. But if you, do, if you don't do those things, then your church will grow. This is really the temptation of ministers when they begin to step into a church that needs to grow. They think, well, let's lower the bar, you know, bring the common denominator down a little bit. Again, that's, it's foolhardy. We do live in an age, as one scholar said, we live in an age where we worship the secular trinity, right? Tolerance and diversity and pluralism. That's what we worship. This gospel does not fit well in that box. This gospel is he is unique. There are no other ways. And if you turn away from him, you will be accursed. That is not a message that sells. But here's the glorious thing about it. When you preach it and people believe in it, you know it's God. There's nothing drawing them to them. I mean, you know it's God waking them up to it because that is not a message that will sell. No advertising firm will take that and want to move with it. They will adjust it, twist it, turn it, paint it up. They've got to change it. But it's just the straight message, and people still come to faith. And then the last thing I would simply say about this, this last Paul's defense here is, is that don't forget the value of a rebuke. Paul risked his friendships here. He risked his friendships by speaking to them the truth. You, knew that he, you know that he loved them. He says later in chapter 4, I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ be formed in them. Paul desires for them to know Christ and him crucified. He wants them to know the gospel. The leadership of the church wants you to know the gospel. You know, it's painful work to move a people forward. You know that as you intersect other friends, helping them move forward in the gospel. You have the, and, and so let love move the rebuke. If we bring rebuke to people because we don't like the idiosyncrasies of their habits or tics, and we just rebuke them because we, we want it changed for our benefit, it's not the same. To rebuke somebody for the purposes of their own soul, still needs to be done kindly and humbly. We're going to see that in chapter 6. Let those who are spiritual, let those who are spiritual engage those who are sinning. In other words, the humble ones need to do this. We need to humble ourselves, recognize that there, but for the grace of God, go I. So here, Paul, just in these four verses, it's incredible. There is no other gospel for us. 
Friends, this is what we rally around. This is what we build our church on. This is what holds us together. We may have political views that are quite different from one another, or cultural views, or theological views, or moral views, and they may need discussion between one another. But may we never lose the center point of our faith, which is Christ and him crucified for us. So folks, and for those that, you know, particularly those who have been raised in the faith, I, I hope you hear this because you have yet, you know, you have to, we have to believe. If anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. So we have to deal with this. When Jesus came into the world as, as a child, grew up, lived a perfect life, died for our sins, rose from the dead, ascended to the Father, and then took his seat next to him, it changed the dynamic. There, there is no middle ground now. There is, I am with him or I am not. And so I, I encourage those of you who are still undecided, let's speak about this. Grab an elder, grab a, a staff member, grab somebody next to you, but don't let this go uh, without you finding yourself, where am I with this, this gospel of Jesus Christ? And for those of you who join with me in thanking God for it, let's rejoice. Let's ask God, God, help us to love your son so deeply that his worth would eclipse any cost of sacrifice in following him. And then you know what? We're really free, aren't we? Because if this is the only gospel, and this gospel brings us to God into the new age, then what do we have to fear? We are the freest, happiest people. We have no fear of what comes tomorrow. Let's rejoice in him now for a few moments and I'll pray for us.